Last week we took a bit of a journey unpacking how much of our default uh, modern worldview. Um, can you just go to the next slide, next one after that? I need a clicker actually, but it's all good. Uh, this is what we kind of looked at last week, this kind of how our default modern worldview has been shaped in the last 200 years. And we looked at uh, the fact that though Revelation does speak about things in the future and we'll get the Revelation is actually not primarily a timeline of end time events awaiting to unfold. It's a call to patient endurance in the face of the pressures around us to conform to the ways of the world, and it's a glorious telling of the triumph of the Lamb. <laughs> Uh, and so the next slide, we looked at the historical tools that we need to, uh, to read Revelation well. It's historical context, the genre of the text, the use of the Old Testament within Revelation, and the use of numbers within Revelation. Now, if you haven't listened to that talk, um, like they're all kind of going to build off that platform. So it would be pretty good to listen to that, uh, because otherwise you'll just, yeah, that's fine. I mean, they, they may stand alone, we'll find out. Uh, but there we go. Um, but also, these tools are, are just good tools to have in your tool belt. Anyone that there's different ways that we can read the Bible. We can read it devotionally, which is a very important thing to do. But then there's also ways of diving a lot deeper into the Bible and, and exploring it a little bit more academically. And that brings so much life. You think the Bible's deep? Ooh, you wait till you start taking using some of these tools. It gets more epic than you can ever imagine. Anyway, so this morning we're going to look at Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the churches. And if you've heard a sermon on Revelation, you've probably heard a sermon from Revelation 2 and 3. Easiest part of Revelation to preach from, um, but even then there's a few tricky bits in there. Um, but as we'll see this morning, the passage has so much to say to our church this morning, today. But the question that we ask first is what did it mean to the original audience and their context? And then from there, what does that therefore mean for our context? That's how you interpret the Bible. And the Holy Spirit breathes on that and quickens our heart. It has one meaning, literally, uh, in terms of a literary uh, sense, culturally, contextually grounded, but it has multiple significances. So it's got one meaning, but many significances in different times and cultures. And it's important to keep that in mind as we move forward into the more apocalyptic portions of Revelation. But we're not there yet. We're going to... Um, all of you just can't wait for beasts to turn up and dragons to turn up. And it's all a little disappointing that we have to wade through the letters to the Revelation this morning. But uh, I'm glad that you're here because I think God <laughs> wants to speak through all of it just quietly. Um, so that's just to ground us in what we've worked so far and uh, what we've worked through so far. So John is on the island of Patmos. He hears this voice like a trumpet. It's like, all right, pay attention. And he sees Jesus in his glory. And we tried to... Um, unpacked that a bit at the end of the sermon last week. It's so hard as a preacher to articulate the glory and the beauty and the majesty of what John's seeing as he sees Jesus uh, in that vision uh, and worships the closest you can get. Like we had a little taste of it just then, like a like diluted little taste of what John experienced as he saw Jesus uh, as, as in his full deity. And at the end of that uh, passage, chapter 1, we saw Jesus, not on his own, but he's amongst the churches. He's walking amongst the lampstands. The last verse of Revelation 1 interprets, interprets this for us. It says this, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so there's no debate 
Like even, and the interesting thing even for John, it's like John's writing to people that understood the um, apocalyptic literature, they understood that genre, but even then he wanted to make sure there was zero confusion. The lampstands represent the churches and there is Jesus standing amongst his church. Jesus loves his church, which is super annoying, I know, but he loves it. And... Uh, you know, Revelation as a book will come to critique heavily the Roman Empire um, and it will spell out the future hope that we have. John will get there in, in, in surprising and challenging ways to us. But after a, a revelation of Jesus' glory, the next thing in this book is that we see that Jesus speaks to the church, calling it to purity and life. Um, now, it's really interesting to think about what's been happening over the last couple of years in our context. In the last couple of years, amongst all the pressures of COVID and all that sort of stuff, there's been just a string of moral failures in the global church amongst very high-profile Christian leaders. People like Bill Hybels and Ravi Zacharias and Bruxy Cavey and Carl Lentz, and I could go on and on and on, major compromises and moral failures and recently um, less major but still significant compromises by people like Brian Houston. Uh, in New Zealand, our biggest Pentecostal church at the moment is dealing with story after story hitting the media of people who have been very broken by, uh, in their experience of that church. Uh, the church across the world has been dealing with scandal after scandal after scandal. And sometimes people are like, oh yeah, the church, um, this is like the church suffering a bit of persecution. And I'm like, oh. you know, I mean, Jesus did say that the world would hate us at times. And the churches that John is writing to had suffered and were going to suffer persecution for their faith. The thing we've got to discern in our context is, are we being hated for the right reasons? <laughs> because sometimes we need the humility to see when a critique is coming from outside the church or from the Lord himself. And we need the wisdom to, uh, uh, to say yes. And other times we need the wisdom to understand, to, to go, no, this is actually our faithfulness to Jesus that the world won't understand. So of course the media is going to critique stuff at times, and that, that well, may happen more and more, and it's been happening from time to time, where it's like you get critiqued, but it's because they don't understand what it means for Jesus to be Lord, for your world to be completely shaped around him. So much of the current pain actually in the church is quite self-inflicted currently, uh, and uh, that's not easy. At the other end of the spectrum, there's this mass resignation of good, humble pastors happening, particularly in North America. Fatigued, exhausted, sick of being the punching bag because of the social issues of the day, tired of carrying too much of a consumeristic culture where people consume church rather than be the church. So you've got both extremes happening at the most unprecedented pace I've ever seen in my ministry life. And I think God's doing two things in this, and this uh, passage in Revelation, I think, really speaks to this current cultural moment for us as a church. Firstly, I think he's calling congregations to stop consuming church and to be the church, to be the family of God. Now, obviously, if you're in a toxic, unhealthy church, or there's some doctrinal things that you can't align yourself with, or whatever, or God calls you to leave a church, which does happen, of course you should leave it. So I'm not trying to say we should stay in contexts that aren't helpful, um, uh, but... Um, God's called us into an expression of his church, a local expression. And we're called to love it and serve it and not consume it, but to be the church. We are the church. We're like the family together. We all have our different roles. I have my role. Um, and it's not easy. We're going to talk about that. Like church is messy and super annoying sometimes. 
But God somehow in that mess and annoyingness uses that to shape something so Christ-like in us that we actually learn what it looks like to truly love. That's the context of how to learn to love. And so like staying committed is not easy, but it will grow you in Christ-likeness. To leave church has multi-generational consequences. And people don't think, I see a lot of people leaving church at the moment. And I'm like, well, that's a big, like, that's the, it may seem like the easy option, but I can promise you, you haven't considered your grandchildren. So the default is that we're called to contribute, actually, and to uh, love the church. And the best thing that you can do is accept that church is messy and love it anyway. Eugene Peterson, in his commentary on, uh, on Revelation, and it's a book called Reverse Thunder, says this. Churches are living rooms, and if the persons living in them are sinners, there will be clothes scattered about, handprints on the woodwork and mud on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious and an upright to the upright. They are simply lampstands where the light of Christ is shown. They are not themselves the light. There must be no idealization of the church and lament ought to be restrained. That line in particular struck me. Eulogy and anguish are misplaced. The churches were never much better or much worse than they are today. They just are. How cool is that? So like even as the churches in Revelation get these letters, guess what? It felt like this. Weird and messy and normal and wonderful and filled with beauty and love. So I think there's this call for congregations to... to to move from being consumers to contributors and to see this thing really grow in a healthy way. But secondly, God is dealing with leaders and with ministries. God is purifying his church at the moment because God hates hypocrisy. He wants to deal with the celebrity culture that has grown in the church. Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. That's who we're called to follow. John Tyson, in a recent sermon commentating on all that's happening around the place, said this zinger of a mic drop quote. God is so committed to having a church filled with integrity and holiness and righteousness and truth that he is willing to put a wrecking ball through any ministry or platform where there is rottenness and sin at the centre of it. Well, I'm not going to drop that because it's an expensive mic, but I reckon that's, there's a critique of the church that's taking place right now. And I believe it's from God, and we need to pay careful attention to it. Our response to this is very important. In Revelation, Jesus comes and stands amongst the lampstands, and he brings his messages to the church. In chapter 1, you have this intense vision of the beauty and the glory and the power of Christ. And in chapter 4 and 5 that we'll look at next week, he's taken into the very throne room of God, angels and incredible lightning and glory and holiness. But to get to the throne room... Jesus first converses with real people in messy communities who do need correction and rebuke and affirmation and encouragement and promises. To get to the holiness and beauty of God, you've got to walk through the messiness of church. Come on. So Jesus speaks to these churches that he loves through John who loves these churches. And these messages um, uh, are just beautiful, but they're challenging. So the kind of framework from Revelation 2 and 3 looks like this. It has, uh, basically, they're kind of like, um, they're like royal decrees. And every single one of them has like a prophetic pattern within it, where, um, where there's these uh, self-identification of Christ from chapter one. This is who Jesus is. Then in an affirmation where applicable, I know, like I can see what you're doing there. How beautiful. It's, an, it's a comforting healing statement. 
but then he's got this, but then there's normally, but I do have this against you. There's a judgment where applicable. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, can you, like, you got to remember, this is a circular letter, and there's seven different churches, and no more churches would have read it, but it's like, ooh, I wonder what he's going to say about Grace Vineyard Church and Christchurch. Oh, I wonder what they're going to say about Central Vineyard up in Auckland. Oh, yeah, I thought they always thought that. Oh, no, Bay Vineyard. Oh, no, oh, no, it's coming. Oh, no, it's... <laughs> That's the dynamic going on. Now, as we read this stuff, I've said this many times, like if you look in your Bibles, you see they're in the red letters. This is the words of Jesus. Now, every single thing, I, I would love someone to tattoo this on themselves. Honestly, it's that, that hardcore of a statement. Every single thing Jesus says is motivated by love and will lead us to life. Every, you've got to have that grid with everything Jesus says. It's motivated by love and will lead us to life. So he, he's looking at these churches and he's critiquing it. Campolo said, don't Tony Campolo back in the day said this, if you love something, and it's not living up to its highest ideals. It's your job to challenge it and critique it and call it to its true identity. And so Jesus is looking at these churches saying, no, come, this is who you're meant to be. And you're going to hear him say that as we look at a couple of examples today to you, the church. Again, can I just, super important as we preach this message. You've got to hear it like you are the church. Don't detach yourself from the church. Because that's a consumeristic Worldview. We hear this and we're like, oh, that's me because I'm the church. So important. Um, but this is a statement I often use because pastors get occasional feedback, right? <laughs> oh, I could tell you some stories. <laughs> oh, no, don't Harvey, stop. <laughs> I can't do it. Okay. Anyway, so there's some funny ones. Um, but his, his, my filter has to be this, when, and because and I invite, I, I want that. Like, that's funky if you can't give me feedback. That's broken. So, uh, no problem. But here's, here's my filter if I get an email or a phone call. I love it because it takes courage. And every single time someone says to me, normally the first thing you'll get in the reply is, thank you so much for the courage it took to send that. Of course it takes courage to give feedback to a person of power in your life. Right, right. But here's the filter I've got to operate from. The person that, has, that pays the highest price has the highest say. So I don't hear all feedback equally. Those that, have, that I'm not, have given themselves to see this place flourish, if they give me feedback, it's like, whoa, we're listening to that. They're invested. They're really giving themselves to this community because it's so easy to critique. I mean, honestly, I could critique all. I, I love the church, so I actually do critique it a lot. I love it, but I'm paying a high price to love the church. So I get a higher say because I've poured my life into this thing. Jesus has paid the highest price to love the church. He's paid the highest. He died for it. That's how much he loves this weird community. It's his idea. So he gets the greatest say. And that's why this, these uh, books really matter. And then the last one, uh, I love this on everyone. There anyone who has an ear, listen. So all the churches are listening at the time. And then for the last 2,000 years, we all read the stuff. If, you've, if anyone has an ear, listen. I mean, if the shoe fits, you should wear it. If it resonates with you, challenges you, convicts you, stirs you up, encourages you, that's probably the Lord speaking through what he spoke to those original seven churches speaking to us today. And so there's this lovely finish always with a promise and a word of motivation. 
What a brilliant construction. Isn't Jesus clever? That's finishing on a high. Oh, that's what we've got to look forward to. It's so good. Now, we don't have time to unpack them all. So we're just going to look at two of the churches, the church in Ephesus and the church in Laodicea. On our private Facebook group, uh, we've got a discussion between New Testament lecturers on the letter to Thyatira probably the most troubling of all the messages to the churches. And I I toyed with it, but I didn't want to get stuck on the weeds there. So extra homework for the nerds. If you want to go there, we've got this other 20-minute discussion around that letter, and that'll be live from 12 p.m. today and is only available for people in our church, for all the people tracking us online or stuff. No, no, should be in Bay Pena. It sucks to be in your church. Uh, And so that's happening there. Um, Let's keep moving quick. When Revelation was written, and there was some debate about whether that was in the mid-90s, which is the first one, not the most recent one, um, uh, or, the, or I think it was actually written in the later 90s. Most scholars land there as well, of course, they'll write with me. Um, most likely they'd experienced the persecution of Nero, who had been a Roman emperor that, emperor that just completely munted the church. And it was a very dark and somber time for the church. And the persecution by Christians by the emperor domination was about, it was just beginning. Now, it's important that we don't think that these churches are under hardcore intense persecution the whole time. Actually, things were pretty sweet a lot of the time in Rome. Because the way that Rome had had their whole strategy around, under these emperors that I just mentioned was to woo other nations to submit themselves to Rome's protection. And they were offered the opportunity to receive the benefits of what was called the Pax Ramona, the Roman peace. So like, come under our leadership and you'll just enjoy prosperity. Um, and uh, so have you, some of you guys would have watched the series Narcos uh, about the Colombian drug, drug lord Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar used to have this phrase where he would say, um, uh, el plato o plomo. Plata or plomo, silver or the lead, your choice. So your choice, you can have a bullet or you can have a whole lot of money. You're cool. And that's effectively what these guys are doing. If we go to the next slide, it's like you could either have uh, great times and banquets and prosperity and your business is going to flourish under Rome, or we can crucify us on the side of the road. You're cool, but you guys, what do you want to do? All you need to do, though, is just make sure that our emperor is your lord. All good? Okay. Now that's where the Christians are like, ah, little issue with uh, said emperor is lord uh, scenario uh, because we kind of central to our confession is Jesus is lord. And it's like, okay, well, that could be an issue. So I guess it's the plata. So it's cool. You know, and there we go. So the, the propaganda actually worked. For those in the Roman province of Asia Minor where these churches are at the end of the first century, there's just all the prosperity there for the taking. All you had to do was submit to Roman rule and the authority of Caesar. And so it's kind of like complex for the churches to work out how to stay faithful to Jesus in this particular culture. And you have in these letters this call to radical faithfulness to Jesus, to Jesus alone. And so let's have a look at these two churches and just see what, uh, and we're going to just do pure exegesis now. We're going to work, um, we're going to do uh, verse by verse and work through our way through some stuff here. So just we've got Ephesus, the background to, to Ephesus is it's a port city. It's one of the chief urban centres of Asia Minor. Lots of pagan religions there, most notably, notably the uh, cult of Artemis, the sister of Apollo. And this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, so it would have just dominated the skyline there. Um, it's a church that was planted by Priscilla and Aquila, which is super cool. Go female leaders in our, uh, in our midst. Uh, and when Paul visited them later, there was a real move of God, and we've got the letter 
to the Ephesians in our, in our Bibles. Um, but when Paul was there and this ministry was happening, it really disturbed the city because they made a lot of money selling idols to travellers the, within the city. This whole economy often was built around some of these gods, these pagan gods. And so they were pretty upset about this whole Christian movement because of what it was doing to the trade in the city and got the, threw their lollies out. And you can read that in the book of Ephesus and at the, in, in the book of Acts as well. So let's have a look at what, uh, what Jesus says to the, book, uh, to the people of Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, he writes, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. So the first thing that Jesus says is he commends them for their toil and their patient endurance. You'll see this thing coming through a lot in Revelation, patient endurance. What a great word for the Christians today after all that we've gone through in the last couple of years. And I know that it's not easy to be a Christian these days. Let's patiently endure. What a great encouraging word. I felt so built up as I've been reading Revelation because I'm like, yes, I'm gonna, I felt like I've patiently endured the last couple of years and I'm going to keep patiently enduring. Fantastic. But also I love this. He, he commends them on their toil and he commends them on their works. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, when we did the missional life course, John Tyson called us as a people to live uh, what, is, what he called a sacred pace. And he's, the danger is that we can live with a complacent pace and many Christians live in a complacent pace. Again, that's consuming, consuming church. And then other people live in a fatal pace where they do way too much and they can't sustain it and they burn out. But we're called to have a sacred pace. So the answer to, you know, like we do follow Jesus, the servant king. And we're going to keep calling people to give and to serve and to be part of this church because we follow the ultimate giver. We follow the ultimate servant. But that's tricky. I can't decide for you at what level you should be engaged in in the phase of life that you're in, the pressures that are on your plate. But let me tell you this. Jesus sees those of you that are giving yourself to the work of the kingdom, who are giving yourself to see this church flourish, and he commends you. Good on you. Don't have a sacred, don't have a fatal pace and don't have a complacent pace. What does it look like to walk in wisdom and have a, a sacred pace? Good word. We've got to keep wrestling with that one. Um, and then they're secondly commended for their patient endurance. Hallelujah, awesome. And they're also commended for the discernment that they've used to identify the self-appointed apostles and identify them as false apostles. There were people that were emerging in Ephesus and they were like, oh no, I'm an apostle. And like, you know, you should give to my ministry. And they're like, like enjoying the whole buzz. But they're completely off. Completely, uh, uh, they, they were charlatans at the end of the day. Now, I've, I, um, I don't have any national role, so I can't stand here public and go, you know who's a, who's a charlatan and a false apostle in New Zealand? I've got a few thoughts, but we'll save them for coffee. Uh, but here's the thing. It's an important work that the church is called to, to, to discern teaching and to discern leadership. And these guys were commended for it. We got a bit sleepy on some of that stuff. There are voices out there that do not represent Jesus well. And that's the filter. And so we, the best way to discern this is in community with wise elders as we discern this stuff. And for us, like apostolic leadership's important. 
So for us as a movement, we come under the leadership of Dave and Lizzie McGregor, our previous senior pastors, now our national directors. They're apostolic leaders for us in the Vineyard movement. You'll hear me quote people who, like John Tyson and others who are like apostolic teachers that I've chosen to come under their authority in my life. And they're helping me discern what does it look like to, to follow Jesus faithfully in this cultural moment. So you've got to discern, everyone's got voices feeding our worldview. You've got to discern whether they're good voices or not. Third, uh, verse three, I know that you are enduring patiently. Come on. We need a like noise or something every time that comes, ah! every time that comes up. Enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name. And listen, and that you have not grown weary. Sacred pace, baby, yeah. Verse four, we're moving a little quicker. But I have this against you. Oh no, I was feeling super encouraged. You were toiling well and patiently enduring and discerning well. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Oh, now we're getting into the, into the itchy place or whatever. We, oh no, I didn't think about the metaphor previously, clearly. Um, <laughs> the church had been born in this very interesting city and diverse people had come to faith. And when diverse people get together, you learn to love. 1 Corinthians 13 styles. And they did that well. They did that really well. But then they got a bit broken. And when you're broken, all you can do is think about yourself. When you walk into wholeness, you can live more and more a life of cruciform love. You pour out your life for the blessing of others. And that can be tricky when a community is diverse, to live out 1 Corinthians 13 love. And so the challenge to the church in Ephesus is to re reclaim this vision of a community marked by love. And Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I can't think of a more sobering thing Jesus could say to a church. Like, it's, that's the wrecking ball that John Tyson was talking about. I've seen ministries end. I've seen the lampstand removed. And I'm like, and what's the key thing for Jesus? It's not like how clever we are. It's always, it's like, can we live lives of love? And I, I mean, I've, I've, I've loved preparing for this series because of these moments that I'm having in my office like this. We're like, Lord, restore to me what it looks like to live a life of love in this community. This isn't meant to be a church of cliques. This is meant to be a diverse church where we love each other in all of our diversity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, wrote a, who, who was martyred for his faith uh, after the war in, uh, at the end of the war of, uh, World War II, said this very sobering thing in a book called Life Together about Christian community. He said this, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. What he means there is that if you come into this community going, this community is going to be really loving and sacrificial and amazing, and it's going to, you know, and then the second it's not that, you're like, I knew they're all hypocrites, all rubbish, all pieces, you know, all talky-talky, no walkie-walkie. That, that's... That's what Bonhoeffer's saying. Your job isn't to go, here's the expectations. Your job's to walk in there and just love the community. That's a very different mindset. So rather than expecting the community to be anything, I just walk in there and just love it. And then he's like, 
Uh, then he says, some t- which I haven't put on here just to try and ease the, the condemnation burgers that I'm dishing out right now, but it's like, um, but he's like, those who dream of this idealised community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up in law, blah, blah, blah. Who is mindful to build the church is surely well on their way to destroying it. And then I love this. He's like, we must confess, he builds. We must proclaim, he builds. We must pray to him, him and he will build. We do not know his plan. We cannot see whether he's building up or pulling down. It may be at times, which by human standards, are the times of collapse are for him the greatest times of construction. I reckon that's what's happening in the church right now. It's like church is just getting pooped on from a great height. And it's like, it's like, oh no, the church is going to hell in the handbasket. It's like, no, this may be his season of greatest construction to restore the church to his glory. And maybe at these times, it's a great comfort which Jesus gives to his church. You confess, you preach, you bear witness to me and I alone will build where it pleases me. Jesus is the light. We are the lampstand. Jesus is the light. We, we get to be a lampstand, this community, we get to be a lampstand that bears witness to the true light. That's who we are. Jesus builds the church. I love that. I was convicted as we did this. I'm like, we planted this church, a lot of hard work. And then I'm like, oh, we've got to build the church, got to build the church, got to build the church. And it's like, no, you don't, Harvey. You've got to love the church. I'll build the church. Very different feel when pastors are, are there. Just like my job's to love the person in front of me. My job's, it's his job to build the church. It's our job to be faithful and to love one another. And so your job is to love this messy church. And by church, I mean the people down the road. I know you're all shuddering. Surely not. And your job is to point to Jesus. And so then in verse six, yet to this, so again, it's kind of like good cop, bad cop a little bit, you know. But to your credit, <laughs> you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So well done. Immediately, there's all what these Nicolaitan guys are about. Um, it's a bit tricky working out what they were on about. Arrhenius, a uh, church father, mentions them. And he says this, they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. And so Jesus is saying, I detest this lifestyle. I hate this. And like again, we live in a culture, right? In a world of unrestrained indulgence. Where it's just like, yeah, just do it, man. So it makes you feel good. Like that's the whole vibe. And it's like, no, we actually call to the faithful way of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't like, we've got to say this real quick. Jesus isn't like, I don't like people having fun. So no, Jesus wants to see us flourish. What he hates is seeing souls get warped and munted and destroyed, which happens if you live lives of unrestrained indulgence. Some of us have come from, have got a testimony of living lives of unrestrained indulgence. And we can tell him, you come out the front and give testimony, it munted my soul. And I'm still recovering probably from some choices I made back then or whatever. So Jesus stands there saying, like, that's just not who we are. And as Christians, he's calling us again in this to fidelity of saying, we, we don't condone sort of stuff. So no, we look to Jesus and say, what does it look like to live lives of integrity and holiness? Verse seven, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Again, I love that Holy Spirit. Come and just awaken us. To everyone who conquers, here's the promise, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. So to everyone who conquers, some translations say to the victorious, to those who overcome, who overcome what? Who who conquer what? The temptations, the seductions, the pressures, the persecutions that they are facing to live faithfully following the land wherever he leads you. To those people, those people, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life. 
I will give. So that's not in the future, that's now. The paradise of God has been reopened through the tearing of the veil through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, such that we have access now to the Holy of Holies. And so what is the tree of life? It's the cross. We say this in our communion liturgy every week. Ooh, I can't, I'm so excited to get to point to this. We can say that we, we um, whatever the line is, we come to the tree of life rediscovered. The cross is the tree of life rediscovered. So we get to eat to the, from the tree of life uh, um, uh, rediscovered. Choose to follow me, Jesus is saying, and my life will flood into yours. My holiness will flood into yours. Even in your suffering, you will so be transformed in your soul, you will be fully alive in me. Like, that's cool. What a great promise. So in this uh, church, we're called to labour for the things of the kingdom and in that patiently endure. We're called to discern we're called to love well. We're called to live a radically different life. And as we choose that pathway, more and more, we will experience the life of God more and more. That's the literal translation for the Western church now. That's, that's the, the word to the, to the church in Ephesus. Can you feel it resonate today? Would have been the same for them. So then let's move forward. So that's the very first letter to the church. Let's go to Laodicea. Now you've got to remember this is a circular letter, as I said earlier. <laughs> Um, the guys in Laodicea would have enjoyed hearing about Ephesus, but now it's their turn. Now, wealth, Laodicea is a, is a wealthy city. Um, there's a lot of bankings going on in Laodicea, a very wealthy place. It's also like a fashion place. They, had like the, they were known for the black wool. They had these sheep that made like the most incredible black wool. So it's kind of a styly, like that's the, cent, the fashion centre. And also had this medicinal centre that boasted a medical school that trained physicians and produced this famous air ointment and eye, um, eye cream. So they had health and fashion and money, a lucrative and cool city. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. So again, Jesus is pointing to himself, being the faithful witness. Verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Who's heard a sermon from this verse? Come on. This is probably the well, most well-trotted out verse in all of Revelation, particularly if you grew up in Pentecostal circles or charismatic. You're like, oh yeah, I've heard that one. And I was, as I'm working through the commentaries, I was like, oh no, oh no, I've preached this wrong myself. I've preached this, I've misread and mispreached the scripture. Because, you know, the classic interpretation, which again, we just take at face value and put all of our understanding of those words on them, is hot is good and passionate for Jesus, cold is bad and naughty, and lukewarm, which so many of our Christians are, is even more disgusting to God than all, and he vomits it out. Right? That's kind of been oh, what I may have preached back in the day. Now, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the call to passionate love for Jesus. There's just other texts you can use that will call you to that. For example, Easter, which we call the passion of the Christ. That's a little chestnut we could probably trot out if we're trying to say, this is how passionate Jesus is for us and we're called to imitate him. Let's be passionate and lay our lives down for others. Good little passage to use here. Now, the context to this is key to reading this passage correctly. And the context lies actually in the geographical and historical context of the city itself. Nestled just above uh, the Lycus Valley, Laodicea sat vertically between Colossi, 10 mi uh, miles further along. Do we have the next slide? I think I've actually got a map in there. Or I may have... No, I don't. Okay, sorry. I updated it, but then forgot to update Prozender. Anyway, it's between these two cities, Colossae further down the line, and Hierapolis, which is higher up and on the other side of the valley. Now, interestingly, 
Laodicea have got no access to water within the city themselves. They have to get it piped in. And they've got two options. They've got the cold springs of Colossae, but it's, that, that's downstream. They can't get it to them. But up on the hill, you've got Heropolis, um, which has got these beautiful hot springs to this day. And so they're like, well, how can we get water into Laodicea? We've got to use these, um, whatever they're called, these little aqueducts um, to get the water from Heriopolis, next slide, down to, so they're still there today. Where's Ramon? There we go, there. So they're still there today. They've got these little aqueducts that they'll use to get the hot springs there. And the water would start its journey hot, but by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it was lukewarm and actually initially unsuitable for drinking um, as it was tepid and filled with minerals. So the inhabitants had to bottle up the water when it first arrived and store it in jars in cool places to allow it to drop to a suitable temperature for drinking. So here's, here's the city, smug about the fact that it's pretty cool, and then Jesus comes in swinging. And basically what he says initially is, I just wish that you're hot and cold. So the hot water in Heriopolis was known for its like healing powers, like it was just healing. And then you've got the cold springs of Colossae, which are like refreshing. And he's like, you guys just are doing nothing. Like I'd love it if you were doing some kingdom work, bringing healing or bringing refreshing, but instead you're doing like nothing. This whole passage is about fruitfulness. It's about fruitfulness. The literal translation is vomit. Uh, it's like, and so like the, Eugene Peterson says, lukewarmness is a special fault of the successful. It's like we're doing so well that it's just, again, it's about us. It's not about the things of the kingdom because we can just cruise along. But actually, uh, we're called to be fruitful. And examining fruitfulness is an important spiritual discipline. Fruitful, fruitfulness is about the actual beneficial outcomes to the activities of our lives. What specific fruit has been born through our words and actions? And I've banged this drum a lot, but following Jesus is not about waiting to, go to, waiting to go to heaven because you've prayed a prayer when you die. Following Jesus is learning to be with him, become like him, and to do what he did if he was you. There it is in the sermon again, every week just about. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And so as you sit with him and become more like him, you will do more things that he does in your world. You'll become more and more fruitful. It will lead a life that will lead to a life that has beneficial impact on the world around you. Phil Strout, uh, the previous national director for the Vineyard in the States, prayed the same prayer for nearly a decade, and it was this: He prayed this every single day, and maybe it's a prayer we need to pray. Lord, anoint me to the measure that you can trust me, and put your finger on anything in my life that would impede your trust. Lord, anoint me to the measure that you can trust me and put your finger on anything in your life that would impede your trust. That's a dangerous prayer to pray every day for 10 years. That's a really dangerous prayer to pray. But I love it. I love it. I'm like, Lord, refine me, mold me, shape me so that I'm not just a Christian cruising. I'm a, we're a church that's fruitful. Lord, let it be that we'd be a church that's fruitful. This is a strong call to be fruitful, to not lose sight of that. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a kick in the ghoulies for a church that's like, <laughs> we're such a cool city, you know, and it's like, and I'm like, so, and it's probably connected. What stopped the fruitfulness is this pursuit of wealth and orientating a life around that. They've lost their identity as people who bring healing and refreshing, who bring the kingdom of God into their world world. And they think their security lies in the fact that they're prosperous and they have this top-notch medicine and epic fashion and we need nothing. And Jesus is like, man, you're wretched, man. You're the opposite. Now, it's important to say that Jesus does not say having money or wealth or being fashionable is a bad thing. 
He just points out that it has blinded them and given them a false security. You need to be very careful when you get into that space. It's not bad in and of itself, but you just have to have your eyes even more open to the state of your soul. You're more in danger the more successful you are because you lose an awareness of actually your true state. And I was actually particularly struck by the fact that he, he hits them up and he's like, you think you're cool? You're actually naked? <laughs> like, like there's a super cool city with all its epic fashion sense and it's viewed by God as naked. And it's like, I, I was particularly struck by that. I was like, I just, maybe I, don't know, I just love it. I, I, I've looked like this my whole life, I think. <laughs> uh, but it's like, being cool doesn't impress God. And like, we aren't here to make Christianity cool. We're here to proclaim Jesus as Lord. We're here to say Jesus is the humble king and we're choosing to follow him. And I just want to say this publicly, I never want us to be a cool church. I never want us to be a cool church. Like we, it's like, no, I want us to be a church where you can be you. And like, if people want to turn up wearing suits, awesome. And if people want to wear up to church wearing jandals, awesome. Like, just be you. You know, like, because you just feel out of place if there's this whole vibe going on. I turned up to a meeting up in Auckland a couple of years ago, and I turned up there just looking like this, because it's like what I'm going to wear tomorrow. And it's like, I turned up and like everyone was wearing, their jeans were rolled up a little bit, and then they were in shoes, but they didn't have any socks on. And it was just like, and I was the only part, and like, was this a young pastor and the old pastor? And I was like, oh no, if I roll up my socks, you'll see I've got socks on and my shoes don't really work. And I was like, I just felt so out, out of place. And it was just like, this is weird, you know? And I'm like, I miss that. I mean, you know, I'm just a country bumpkin now that lives in Napier, clearly, because I, I lost track that pastors are now meant to wear their jeans up a little bit and just seeing your shoes and no socks. And like, I just felt out of place and just weird. And, and like, I never want this church to feel like that. I never want to feel like you're the outer because of what you wear. No, be you. Like, there's this whole, like, Instagram thing that I look at every now and then when I want to get really upset about the church called Preacher's Sneakers. And it just, all it does is show these out, these these literally multi-thousand dollar shoes that preachers are wearing. And it's like, do you know how much God hates that? Like how the opposite of his heart is? Like he associated with the weird and the fringe and the uncool. It's especially where he was drawn. And like that's, if, that's, if you feel like that, you've got a bullseye on you that says you're exactly the sort of person Jesus loves hanging out with. Be you, be free. Our identity is not going to be, oh, you know, there's a whole rant. We are never going to, we are never going to be a cool church. We're going to be a messy, weird church filled with ordinary broken people. That's who we're going to be. And so what had happened is that church in Laodicea got called it, they had taken the values of its city and made it kind of the thing in their church. And Jesus is calling it to repentance. That's probably the, that's probably the only reason I got really excited about that one is like, I feel like we're doing that okay. Well, the other ones I was like, ooh. <laughs> that was like, yeah, we're not cool. Hallelujah, we're not cool. And, and I thought, if you think I'm cool, I'm sorry, I'm not. I just wear, this just really worn. Anyway, I'm not a cool surfer guy. I just am a little bit of a dad bod that wears a body. And I'm balding, so I wear hats and there's all that. So, therefore, I counsel you. Listen, so then Jesus hits them. He's like, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He hits the three things that the city's known for. Buy from me the gold refined by fire. And oh, you've got all your cool black clothes. Wear white clothes, robes that I clothe you in. Clothes of purity and righteousness and holiness to keep the shame of your nakedness being seen. And you've got all these fancy medicines. I want to give you this ointment to anoint your eyes so that you can actually see what's going on. The three industries are mentioned there. 
I love that. I reprove, and then I love, this is Jesus, like, oh, I went him pretty strong there, didn't I? And I love verse 19. I rep- look, just so you know, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. I, I critique those I love. Be earnest and repent. It's like, I'm saying this because I love you, church. Everything Jesus says is motivated by love and leads to life. And then in verse 20, in other sermons, you would have heard this. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. We've uh, used um, that passage a lot as a call to conversion. And that's fine. You know, Jesus does stand at the door and knock. But he's actually speaking to the church. He's actually speaking to the church. Like we can get caught up, oh, we've got money, we're cool, we've got this medicine, we're going to work. So no, how about we open the door and let Jesus back in? How about come into the church? This is a call to communion, not conversion. And, and again, we've used it, it's fine. But it's a, it's a call to intimacy, to share a meal. To share hospitality in first century culture was a show of love and intimacy and respect. And Jesus desires not only feasting at the future messianic banquet at the completion of all things, but also intimacy with us as his church in the now and not yet of his kingdom. True riches are found in communing with God and living a life of love. And how long it takes you to realise that and actually believe it and therefore live it, that's up to you. I'm going to say that one more time. True riches are found in communing with God and living a life of love. How long it takes you for you to realise that and believe it and live it, that's up to you. But that's where the true riches are. And God will use dissatisfaction and depression and emptiness or anything. That's him like knocking at the door, saying, let me in, I want to commune with you. And John explicitly obeys this command, interestingly, in the next chapter. In the next chapter in verse 1, he says, After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take us after this. Like John, after all the messiness of the church, sees a door open and walks through it. And what happens when he walks through that door? He sees the glory of God, the holiness of God, the beauty of God at a whole other level. Verse 21, to the one who conquers, I'll give a place with me on my throne just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Again, those that overcome the temptations to put our trust in material things, that we get to be with them. And again, you know, thrones back in the day weren't like, like a chair, like one single chair. They're kind of more like a big couch. And like Jesus is like, come, I want you to sit up here with me. Like you choose to, to be faithful to me against this picture of intimacy and communion. John, who I think was the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and 1, 2, and 3, John, he reclined on the chest of Jesus. He had that experience. And he hears Jesus say, come on, sit on the big couch with me. I want to, back here, John, Johnny boy, back here. You know, lean in this, this sense of intimacy with, uh, with me. I finish uh, with this. Michael Gorman in his commentary says this, the message of these seven addresses from the risen Christ is not a call to death, but to discipleship, including an uh, abstention from all that defiles. This costly discipleship, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer described it, is much more demanding than many Christians in the first century or any century realised or desired. It is the task of revelation in part to convince its hearers and readers that faithful discipleship has both costs and rewards. That is why the seven messages contain both words of challenge and promises drawn from the visions found in chapter 21 and 22. Next week, we are going to explore the profound picture of that heavenly realm because we hear this and we're doing these little bits. Heard last week, we heard this week. They would have all heard it in one hit and they would have heard it with the, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, John seeing Jesus on the island of Patmos, then the critique of the churches and then next minute, he's in the throne room of God. 
And it's like it brings so much perspective when we worship him. Um, and so we kind of miss, we a little bit stuttered in, in terms of how we're doing it. Uh, but next week, we're going to look at the throne room of God. And I can't wait, because I promise you I'm going to preach a slightly shorter message. And we're going to spend a lot of our time just worshipping him and adoring him. And, and because how do our hearts get realigned to be faithful to him? It's through worship. It's through like a revelation of his glory and goodness. I don't want to grip my teeth. I want to be so in awe of who he is that I'm like, any cost is nothing compared to the joy of knowing you. I've been caught up in who you are. And so we, we're a little bit kind of unanchored from the wider context here. But there is a critique, hey? And I know that you've heard it this morning. And I believe that God is purifying his church right now. And I love it because he loves this church and he loves our church and he wants to see it flourish again. He wants to see the church restored to his heart, his dream. And um, that's not easy though. And I, I land land with this. Last Sunday night, we're praying. I love our prayer meetings. Everything that God's doing in this place is, is credit to the prayers of the saints. He just loves answering, hearing and answering our prayers. Please come. It's so important. And last week we're praying. We had such a good prayer meeting. Deep and rich and just God just there. And, and I was praying some prayers along the line, like, Lord, I see what you're doing in the church and we just want to, we want to hear your voice and we want to, all that sort of stuff. Good, good prayers, you know, pretty good preach. And then Cara Duxfield, God bless her. She was like, and Lord, as the church, we repent. And Lord, as the church, we're sorry. Lord, as the church, we're sorry for how far we've strayed from what you're design and heart was always meant to be. And she went along, and it went from the preacher's nebulous out there, sort of theoretical prayers to, no, me, Lord, I repent. I'm sorry for what this thing has become. Restore me, because as you restore me, you restore this. Call me back to holiness. Call me back to purity. Call me back to integrity. Call me back. And so that's what he's doing. And so let's pray.